the tension between bandwidth and equity, like the way you can practice equity in this work too, right? When that sort of situation happens, it's like, if you were to truly be as equitable as possible, like that takes time and it takes you know, human powers, you say, and and yet often we have to think about our bandwidth and limitations of how many people are on our team and all of those pieces. And it's just a really tough tension to manage always. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathine, and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers everywhere. I think y'all are really going to enjoy my conversation this week. It is with Emily Mochizuki Letians. Emily grew up in London, Tokyo, and New Delhi, and is passionate about making the world a more equitable and inclusive place. Emily has driven social change in education, healthcare, responsible tourism, and agriculture, expanding for-profit, social enterprise, and nonprofit organizations in Mexico, Uganda, South Africa, the UK, and the US. She is currently the VP of Portfolio Strategy at Common Future, where she leads a team building Common Future's impact portfolio focused on the incubation and co-creation of field-defining initiatives that close the racial wealth gap in the US. Previously, Emily was the managing director at Uncharted, where she was responsible for the day-to-day of the organization, leading and managing the team, and ensuring Uncharted delivered on its strategic goals. Before joining Uncharted, Emily was the co-founder and CEO of Legworks, a for-profit social enterprise with a mission to enable amputees globally to walk with confidence. Prior to Legworks, Emily was the founding county director of Educate, an education nonprofit developing young leaders and entrepreneurs in East Africa. She studied international relations at Brown University and has an MBA from the University of California, Berkeley, where she was a Haas Merit Scholar. Emily once drove from Uganda to South Africa, and you can generally find her eating chocolate or just eating. Emily and I spent a lot of time talking about the role of ego in social change. We spent a lot of time talking about finding your particular niche and really unpacking some of the challenges of working in impact in general, but where a lot of the opportunity lies as well. So Emily, thank you so much for taking the time. I think one of the big themes that kind of particularly came up in 2022 that people were talking about is that it's impossible to never do harm, right? Even if you are completely dedicated to equity and justice, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And you are flawed, just like we are all flawed. And so there is that that constant stress when you are a small team and you're really, really trying to do the best that you can. But between two people and you know boundless flaws between the two of us, you know that things are going to slip through and that we can't be as present. And then the other side of that equation is in our work, we want to pick people we really want to take a chance on and help them thrive. And there's this constant like, but we also have to make sure we're partnering with people who are ready to support them and be present for them and not make them feel inadequate because I've seen that happen with other programs. We've luckily not quite had this problem ourselves, but I've seen this with other interns is that they have their first ever internship experience with a very well-meaning organization that assumes that they know more than they do, that makes them feel stupid for asking questions. Like all of this, like really, really gets deep under my skin. And so it's hard. I mean, thinking about access to opportunity and equity is really, really challenging, which you obviously know quite a bit about in your own work. Yeah. I mean, you're in the world of really just investing in humans and building leadership. And it's just tough work to do, you know, because there's so much that can be misconstrued or misunderstood. You don't know 
know whether the result is specifically from your work often. It's just a really, really hard space to be working in, in my opinion, and incredibly rewarding, you know? So maybe hold on to that, like why you do what you do in, in on the exhausting days when you're trying to get through 700 applications. That sounds really hard. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's the piece, right? It's for me, one of the reasons that I've loved the nature of our model as well is that there is so much face time with students. And so we do see that rewarding element of that light bulb going off of like, oh, okay, like I am capable or I am deserving to be here, or I am so much more than I thought that I was in so many ways, or I'm in a space where I'm finally able to thrive in a way that I haven't been able to thrive before. Those moments are incredibly rewarding. And we see that we see that that transformative impact is there. And there is this tension of we can't do that for everybody. And we've intentionally designed ourselves in a way of like, we may not be able to serve all hundreds of people who come our way, but we are going to be transparent. We are going to be empathetic. We are going to provide as much support every step of the way that we can. And then the people who are able to participate in the program, keeping that high touch element of our program rather than scaling for the sake of scale, because that's where we've seen that impact and that trajectory shift be so big. And a lot of funders have trouble with that. They're like, oh, if you have this many people interested in the program, shouldn't you have a 500 person cohort? And I tell them, I was like, well, we've seen the impact of the program goes way, way down if we scale without the capacity to appropriately scale. So that's why we've come to you for funding. And then we get caught in that loop and they say, no, thank you. So that has been a, a big theme of the last couple of years for us. God, it's the depth versus breadth thing, right? That is just so hard for funders. I mean, this is why I think education and leadership more often than not needs grant dollars because there is so much customization and emotional time that goes into a process like this, you know? And I I, mean, we, yeah, I know we're going to talk about like through lines in my career or whatever, but like I went from being in education to like having this like very physical product that helped an amputee to walk. And it was like this black and white thing, right? If an amputee gets access to my product and walks on my product, they have independence, they have mobility, they have the ability to get to school, the ability to go to a job. Like it was like super black and white in a really different way from like investing in leadership in Eastern Africa. You know, the the breadth versus depth of what you can do in those two things is like quite different. And I think what really counts is figuring out what really motivates you when you show up. Because we all make these, these choices as to, do I want to be working on maybe a technology that isn't super leadership focused, but is going to reach lots and lots of people? Or do I want to be focused on that deep leadership, like empowerment work that is so meaningful? Where do you find meaning? And you just, you kind of have to make those choices and you learn along the way. I feel like we're diving into what we were supposed to talk about already, but anyway. No, I no, I love that. And I think sort of to your point, there is no right or wrong way to go about it. It's it's about the intentionality in which you do it and understanding that all of these are different ways to address, you know, the same core challenges in a sense, right? So in the in the depth piece of what I do, which is, you know, thinking about leadership, the reason we do it is not just because it, it's feel good, it's because our theory of change is if you invest in a few really, really strong leaders, the level of impact that they can have over the course of their career is impossible 
to even calculate. It's just, it's enormous versus making certain products and services more widely available through the power of technology and scale, which is also critically important. And I think what's so challenging sometimes about the way we talk about social impact is sometimes we are so one dimensional where it's like, we need to reach as many people as we can, as best as we can. And that's one way to do it, but that's not the only way. So for one of the you know reasons that I'm very excited to talk to you today is you sort of touched on it. You've done a lot of different things in your career. You've done leadership development. You've done tech. You've done responsible tourism. You're now working in racial and equity justice work. For you, what do you see as your through line or a theme that sort of run through your own career, if there even is one? Yeah, I love this question. I mean, I think there's sort of like the through line of my what. So like, what are the issues that I, that underline all of the work that I've been doing? And so if I look for that through line, I think it's something around building choice and independence, definitely equity, definitely inclusion. Like how do we build a world that is more equitable, where individuals have the choice and the power and the mobility and the empowerment to live their lives with dignity. And, you know, especially given how much work there is to do to repair historical systems of harm. So if you think about my work in education in Eastern Africa and Southern Africa, a lot of it was really around repairing the legacy of colonial racist education systems. My work in healthcare and disability was around repairing developing world uh, exploitation, you know, and now come in future, the work is centered around dismantling systemic racial oppression in the US. So I think think there's a through line here in sort of the principles of equity and the principles of inclusion. But I also, like when I think about my career, I think there's a through line in my how So like, how have I approached this work? I've always, always worked for a mission that speaks to me. If that's not there, then I'm not going to show up. Um, I'm not going to say yes to the work. There's always leaders that I respect. And I think I've sort of been on this exploratory path of figuring out how I can best contribute. So, you know, I did that sort of traditional nonprofit fundraising for small checks from individual donors. And then I consulted on development projects that were funded by like these enormous foundations. And then I got a little jaded. I was like, I don't think this is the best way to make the most impact. So I went to business school and then I co-founded this for-profit medical device company with a social business model. The idea being that, oh, if I can build a business, my revenues are going to sustain our international impact. But I discovered that I still had to do nonstop fundraising. So I feel like I've been on this journey searching for like the structures that I can work within in order to create the most impact in the world. And that's also a part of the through line of my career. Which is believing in the work the leadership behind the work or, you know, leading that work and identifying where you yourself can contribute. So sort of going piece by piece, starting with the believing in the work itself, right? This is an interesting concept. There are two things rolling through my brain. One is how often I have the conversation with students and young people who are starting their career of, I don't even know, I care about so many things, right? They have this sort of like, everything matters, everything is urgent. How do you know where to start? So I'm curious if you have advice on this because, so that's that's one piece of it. And then the other other piece of what I say to people who are in that headspace is everything is so intersectional with which is both great because there are lots of ways to impact the systems that you care about dismantling. And also it makes it more complicated because there's <laughs> so many different layers to this work as well. So when people come to you or, or you know, if someone were to it's urgent and important, I don't know where to start. I don't, I care about everything. And that's sort of the energy they're coming to this work. What advice do you give? You know, one of the things that I've had people come to me and ask about is, do I need to have sort of like for profit, you know, sort of like consulting experience in order to do this work well? I'm sort of one of those many case studies. I started in management consulting for like a year and a half. 
wasn't very long. I knew by my second day that it really wasn't for me. But I am one of those people that sort of got that experience under my belt, worked with like Fortune Fortune 500 companies, built financial models, blah, 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 blah. I don't think that work was necessary, right? When people are sort of overwhelmed with what's my first step, there's so many things I'm interested in. Maybe you consider yourself a generalist. My advice is just start, right? Like I don't actually think in order to have an impact, there's sort of like, I must check off this checklist of necessary skill set. I think if you approach each job that you have, whatever that looks like, with an open mindset, with some humility, and try to understand what here is working in terms of the structure, what here is working for me as an individual, you learn those lessons and you take them with you on your career path, move on to your next job and your next exploration of just like finding that fit. And I think that that is the most important part. No one's really going to get it right the first time around. I know very few people who have managed to do that. We're all on a journey. And, you know, I, I sort of say, like, I think I've had two or three careers already, and I am excited to have two or three careers more. And my goal is just to get better at it as I go along and to leverage the impact that I can have because I've figured out and had experiences in different models, small nonprofits, large nonprofits, consulting, for-profit social enterprises. And I've learned about me and how I show up in the work and how I can best contribute. So it sounds really simple. But I think my advice is just go for it. Start building those building blocks. No, I 100% agree with that advice. I think you can read everything in theory. You can talk to as many people as you can, and which is all very helpful. But you're not really going to know how you feel about an organization, a certain theory of change, a certain model for social change until you are in it yourself. So kind of staying in this particular area... Something that you have said to me before, which I am still thinking about, uh, is rather than picking one path, like you said, you're going to have a lot of different careers. Being dedicated to impact is about not throwing your full weight at one sort of way of looking at social change or one particular cause. If you're truly dedicated to social change, you're going to have a lot of different careers. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh my gosh, here's the thing. We're never going to be done. And maybe, God, I, maybe I just sound really negative. You know, but I, I sort of actually think of it more as just like this, this opportunity. So at Karma Future, we envision a new economy that works for everybody, that includes everybody, that doesn't extract. That is a huge vision, if you really think about it. In my opinion, lifetimes of work, generations of work, we're dismantling stuff that has been around for centuries. And so if you go out there and you think that your one solution is going to like make a fix, I don't think you're thinking big enough. And so the work of making the world a better place is sort of like lifelong work. And that's why I think we each go through, if we are dedicated to the space, we each go through multiple journeys. You know, I said, I think I've had two to three careers already. Like I've been through multiple stages on my own personal equity journey. And so we're just, we're not going to get it right the first time. I think that that's wishful thinking. And, you know, when we think about dedication, so I think I'll like <laughs> open up a little bit here. Like, I think as you do this work, you know, you learn things about yourself and how you can best contribute. And I had a wicked muscle of perseverance. Like I was strong and I was really, really passionate. And like first decade of my career, I was just like, go, 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 go. What I came to realize at some point was that perseverance isn't really enough in this work. You need more. You need more tools in your in your toolkit. And I had this experience where I had to actually walk away from the company that I co-founded from my role as CEO because my body literally shut me down. I was going hard, too hard for too long. And my body just said, okay, enough, enough is enough. And so I 
I took this health sabbatical and thought about, really thought about how can I show up in this work sustainably for the long term? Because I know I'm dedicated, but what form does that take? And so I think we can give the best contributions if we focus on the work that we believe in. And also, if we find that place, that role in the sort of structure that like makes sense for us, like this mix isn't going to like naturally fall into your lap, right? But like, I think your career should be an exploration. I think that we all learn about how we'd like to work, the things we're good at, the things that maybe we're good at, but we don't like doing, e.g. for me, fundraising. I was good at it, but it trained me. You know, so I think we need dedication, but we also need like self-knowledge and exploration and practicing those muscles as well. Yeah, I'm processing that because I think that is the piece that particularly in social impact, we neglect so much. It is still very much a culture of if you care, you are going to just go for it and you're going to make it work and you're going to put all of your energy into it. One of the interesting things that I I am on Facebook still for some reason, I don't know why, but I, I'm part of a like nonprofit professionals group. And it is wild to hear the kinds of conversations that nonprofit professionals are still coming up against, particularly from, you know, folks who've been in the industry probably too long, or people who are funders who hold social impact employees and community members to this insane standard. There is this tension of like expectation and status quo and also us having this conversation with ourselves of this is not a sustainable model. This is, we are not going to be able to one, move the needle on change the way that we want to. And also we are going to exclude a lot of people who have a lot to contribute, but maybe don't have that same energy or bandwidth. And so I think there's just so much there that's important to name and to push back on. Yeah. And and like, if you start bringing in gender norms or sort of the way that female leadership is viewed or the way that BIPOC leadership is viewed and the heaviness and the weight and the extra extra mile that is necessary, depending on, you know, how you show up in the world, it's definitely hard. And I think those conversations are starting to happen slowly. And part of this is as we as we learn more about ourselves, hopefully we learn to practice the muscle of discernment around what is the type of team that I want to join? What are the cultural values that I would look for in an organization? Or what are the cultural values I want to build in my own organization? What leadership traits do I respect? Do I trust? Do I follow? Because it's really complex. And if we ignore it and we just try and persevere no matter what, at some point, I think we all each individually hit our limits. And I would much rather have a human who is dedicated and talented in this space stay in this space for 50, 60, 70 years with building in maybe a sabbatical here and there or whatever it is in order to take care of themselves. I'd much rather see that than somebody who, in my case, how long did it take me? I had several burnouts along the way, but like my big crash was sort of like 13 years in. And, you know, I think there was a possibility that I wouldn't have returned to the, well, actually, I don't really think I wouldn't have returned, but it was, it was a big thing. It was a really big thing for me to take stock and say, okay, how can I continue to show up in this work sustainably? So what do you do differently now? What did you learn from that crash 13 years in? And how is that also impacting the way that you lead your teams now and the way that you act as a mentor to others? I'm curious how that's shown up later in your life. <laughs> People call me the mother hen. <laughs> or sort of like they say I'm like the glue on 
the team. That's sort of like some of the things that people have said about me. I think that I just, um, I care pretty deeply about the humans around me and generally try to uh, have a pretty good understanding about what they're good at and also what they enjoy in work. Because I think forcing people to continue to do work that they're good at, but they don't naturally do instinctively and where it's a real big push for them. I think long-term that is unsustainable and it's not like you never do it, right? Like I think that there are a lot of humans, myself included, like when I first started pitching, I would physically shake, you know, when I was pitching, I was so scared. I hated, I hated going on stage. I hated people being the, the center of attention. It just didn't come naturally to me. It never has. But, you know, I did it for seven years. So by the end of it, I was I was pretty good at it. You know, I the last big pitch I did was on stage in front of like 3000 people. It was a live pitch at 43 North and we won half a million dollar investment. So I was like, I'm going to learn this. This is a strength that I need to have. And I, I totally understand that. I get that. And if a direct report comes to me and says, hey, I want to improve on this, I will 100% support that. I think it's just like seeing the longer term pieces of like, okay, this is really draining your energy. And there are ways for you to be to really contribute to work in a way that fits you better, finding those out and coaching people towards that is really important to me. For myself, I took a sabbatical and then I became a new mother for the first time. So it was sort of like a, a double whammy of like, how do I re-enter the workforce in this way? And I specifically looked for a role uh, where I felt like I had confidence. You know, at that moment, I was like, I don't think I need to be super challenged as a new mother. Like, this is not my moment. Again, it comes back to the like multiple careers thing. Like there are moments to really push. And there are moments where you need to rebalance how you live your life and how you contribute in your life. And for me, being a new mother, I thought a lot about what are the things that really drain me? I'm not going to fundraise. That was a really clear boundary I made for myself. And I also found an organization that practices a four-day work week. And so I get a Friday off every single week and generally use it to go see doctors, spend time with my family, practice some self-care, check in on all the general life administration that piles up. And that's been really helpful for me to balance out and keep sustainable in the work. That's amazing. And it sort of ties to one of the elements of what you mentioned. You now are in a position where you are a leader, kind of setting norms, setting standards for how your team shows up and how there should be this balance in the way that we think about work and life and purpose. And so one of the elements that you mentioned that you have always sort of looked for in your own career is not just what is being done, but how it's being done, who is leading that work, right? And something that you and I have also talked about, and I actually had this conversation with an executive director I know yesterday as well, is the role that ego plays in the work of social impact. And it can be potent, it can be dangerous. I think what I've been thinking about so much, particularly as a co-founder who is now entering my fifth year of doing this work and hopefully bringing on a new hire in the next you know, couple of months, I think about this so much of how do I balance the amount of ego that gives me the feeling like I can contribute, right? When you are looking down the barrel of centuries of harm, as you put it, and inequities and actively trying to shut entire communities out of opportunity. That's a 
terrifying thing to take on. But there has to be a little bit of ego there that feels like I can do something about this. Even in a small way, I can do something about this. And that drives that passion and that conviction and that duty. But then the other side is that it can get really out of hand. And suddenly the work doesn't become about the work. It becomes about you and feeling good about yourself. And so I'm curious what you have observed about this. Do you think I characterized it in a way that resonates and what your thoughts are on this challenge of saviorism, which we see so much in this space? So much, so much. And there's another term that I really like, which is heropreneurism or heropreneurship, right? So this is my, my friend, Daniela Puppy Thornton has written extensively about this, but like the self-sacrificial side to social impact work is really powerful. There's also nuance to it in international development work, which is, you know, what I started out doing. And I think what it means is that humans often have a really hard time letting go of the things that they've built. And what we have to remember every single time that is hard to remember is that we don't build things alone. We build things upon the ideas and efforts and movements and learnings of others. And so we have to remember that and contribute to the future generation, right? So like, what are we learning along the way? Where are we failing along the way? And how can we share that externally so that we can continue to contribute? I will own that in my personal case, when I was co-founder and CEO, I felt this like, gosh, it felt like a weight of responsibility, but definitely there was ego in there, right? This responsibility to the patients we were serving, responsibility to my funders and my investors who like believed in me, my team who trusted me to make payroll. And so when I finally walked away, I had entirely forgotten who I was without this like label of co-founder CEO. I was like a complete empty shell. And I had to just basically rebuild who I was on this sabbatical. And so I do think that ego is sort of part of the human condition. And so much, especially in the West, we're just told, produce, go faster, get it done. And I think the best teams that I have been on are teams that practice humility. And it's embedded in the team. It's embedded in the work. You know, you're constantly doing retrospectives. You're thinking, what are the learnings here? What are the failings here? How can I share them? embracing those as being okay. And I think this was something that we did really well at Uncharted, which is my organization before Common Future, this sort of balance between exploration, experimentation, driving towards those results because we believe in the vision, but at the same time saying, we're not the only ones in this space. What can we contribute to this space? Where are we messing up and owning up to that and sharing that and just practicing humility along the way? I had a conversation with someone and I might have already told this story, but I just think it's really interesting. So I'm going to tell it again, which is that someone came to me and said, you know, one of my managers, she was a tutor at a tutoring company, uh, reached out because she wants to start a nonprofit to support young mothers in the community. And she's like, I don't really know how to feel about it. And I said, is she herself a mother? She said, no. It's like, is there a particular focus that they have on how they're supporting young mothers didn't sound like it. And I told her to go back to this woman and ask her, have you landscaped other organizations in the community that are already focusing on supporting young mothers? Have you thought about other ways that you can maybe just embed more services into your existing organization? Have you thought about how you're going to engage the community in this work since you yourself are not a mother? Ask her those questions and see how much she squirms. That's going to tell you a lot about what is behind her motivation for starting this organization and how she's going to come to that work, I should check in with her and see how that conversation went. But I just, I, I've seen this so many times 
of it comes from seemingly a good place, but this particular piece of who is already doing this work, right? There are 1.5 million nonprofits in the US alone, right? We're all working towards very similar goals, but for some reason there is this instinct to, you know, carve your own niche. And I think this comes from this sort of ego element of the human existence, which I agree is sort of very much inherently part of our wiring. 100%. It's like you built a hammer and you're going out there with your hammer and you're looking for a nail. It's like it doesn't matter if the nail actually exists. I will create the nail from scratch, but here's my hammer and I believe in it. And like that is not the way to create change in the world. It's really not. And then I'm curious because you mentioned, you know, you're coming out of your sabbatical. You're a new mom. You know sort of what your priorities are. You've been in this world for a while. So you know the things that you care about. How did you tactically identify the qualities of Uncharted at that time? And what made them an organization that aligned with your own values or had leadership that you actually felt were really walking the walk and not just talking the talk? What are some of the questions or things that we can be looking for as job seekers who are trying to identify what is the right fit for me? <laughs> I feel like my analytical side is going to come out here. Generally, I like thinking spreadsheets. I <laughs> build spreadsheets. But anyway, the, the four buckets that I think about in terms of sort of like going out there and thinking about job opportunities. Number one is mission. Does the mission speak to you? That one to me is just like a gut instinct. You know, is this something that I want to contribute towards? Time is precious. So with, especially as a new mother, right, with the time that I have to contribute to make the world a better place, is this where I want to put my time, my energy, my skill set? The second one is culture. And the third one is supervisor. And the fourth one is role. Okay, so mission we already talked about. Culture is what are the cultural values of this organization? Do they practice humility? Are they get it done no matter what? and just move as fast as possible, no matter what. Do they care about a division between work and life? Or do they want you to show up authentically in your work and sort of there's more of a blur? Like, what are the cultural values embedded within this team? The third thing is, you know, who do you report to? And will you learn from this human? Can you respect this human? Do you, can you trust this human? And the last is your role and the function. Like, what, what would I really be doing day to day? And I look at those four pieces. And the first two are the most important because those are pieces that do not change in organizations. Like, when you, when you show up at a new organization, the idea that you will contribute towards the culture, but culture is organic, right? It's sort of like this nameless piece that is kind of there. Yes, you can list out your cultural values, but there's lots of organizations that sort of list them out but don't actually practice them. It's hard to just sort of instantaneously shift culture. It's hard to shift a mission. Those things are sort of like the water that you choose to swim in. So make sure those align. Those are important. The other two, who you report to, what your role and function is, I hold that a little bit more gently because I think that when you are a part of an organization that explores and learns and looks at the strengths of the team and figures out where they go, if they are a good organization that does that well, they will find you a spot over time. You just have to be patient with it. And so those are kind of like the way I break it down in my brain, those four things. And with Uncharted, they had a lot of female leadership and new mother leadership. That was important to me at the time. I knew and trusted the CEO. He was brave. He practiced humility. He was really a deep learner at heart. Those are all things I respect. The mission, 100%, was there for me. And I will say at the moment, at that time, I was looking for a more established organization that I knew would provide some level of stability. I took a lot of risks in my 20s. And then as a new mother, 
I started thinking, okay, I really need health insurance. I live in the United States. I need a job that's going to give me health insurance so I can take my baby to the doctor. So therefore, I would like a slightly more stable organization, right? So like, yeah, those are some of the things that I thought about with, with Uncharted and their cultural values were on point. And the CEO, obviously, at that time, very well known in our industry, but curious, what were some of the things, what were some of the structural elements of what you saw, or maybe things you heard in your interviews or conversations with people that to you indicated that they really were living those values? Because I think, so a four-day work week is an amazing indicator, obviously, that an organization deeply cares about their people and are willing to try something different for the sake of like doing right by their team. But I'm curious if there were other things that are not necessarily as obvious, or how can you really pressure test the flashy values that someone puts on their about page, right? Which we see a lot of those, but how do you actually get into it? Understand what is my day-to-day going to feel like? How are they, how do they actually take on this work? Curious if there's anything specifically that you saw that were your green flags along the way that people could kind of think about as they're asking questions or engaging in conversations with a new organization. Well, let's talk about like this piece around experimentation and learnings and practicing humility. Like Uncharted had a whole tab on the website around the things where they failed. And it was just out there. It's like, We didn't do this great. Here's what we learned. And I really appreciated that. In the interview process, I met, I don't know, like it was a small team, but it was like, I met a lot of people in the interview process. And there was a lot of listening. I appreciated the questions. The questions were based around their cultural values. And in addition, the way in which they showed up gave me a really good indication of the type of cultural cultural values that they they valued their communication throughout the hiring process was very professional and i i appreciated that a lot and i also think that i had a lot of fear around sharing that i was pregnant when i was searching for a job you know i when i was co-founder ceo i was part of a, a sort of round table of ceos all women and I, I went to them. I was like, I'm pregnant and I'm going to go back to the workforce. When do I tell people during the interview process? Like, what do I do? What, what should I do here? And all of them, every single one of them said, Emily, you don't say anything. You wait until you have the job offer before you say anything, because there's just too much unconscious bias. And so I had this fear of like, oh my goodness, like, does that mean that they won't want me to work for them, et cetera? And the way in which the CEO, as well as the director of people at the time, responded to my sharing that I was pregnant was just, they didn't skip a beat. They were like, congratulations, that's amazing. There was like no qualms around like, okay, we no longer want you on the team. That was also meaningful to me. That's so striking because two things really stand out. One is the details the details of how someone treats you and the transparency and even the way that they email you and the timeliness and the respect, those things do tell you a lot, right? Don't discount those. I think that I want to triple underline that. And then the other element of what's so striking is it's so fundamental. Humility, kindness, just congratulating you that you're pregnant rather than turning it into a whole thing. That is so basic and also so foreign in the context of our times. And that's wild. Uh, and something that we could spend probably two hours unpacking of telling people you're pregnant in the workplace and what that what that can lead to. And I don't have that lived experience, but I, I'm sure you have had your own journey with it. And so 
just something that I think is really helpful for people to hear is is those are the sort of things and, and trusting your gut with how those interactions are going. There's so much power to that. So you've talked about Uncharted. And one of the things that Uncharted is very well known for is being very transparent with their learnings, their mess ups, all of that sort of thing. And one of the ways that you and I were connected is that you recently helped lead, is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but helps lead the recent merger of Uncharted and Common Future. And the first piece is that mergers as a thing are not something we often associate with the nonprofit world. So we'd love to talk about that. But it's interesting, you're working on a project to sort of lay out what you all have learned about the merger process itself for people like me to learn from, which I think is amazing. And again, just speaks to the values of Uncharted and Common Future. So sort of starting with that first piece of why are mergers in the nonprofit world not talked about? What makes them different from, you know, air quotes, traditional mergers that we hear about in the corporate world. Curious to kind of get some basic background from you on that. Well, I, I should call out that I am not an expert on this. You know, I've, I've experienced this one nonprofit merger and that's it. It wasn't really something that I'd ever studied before. There's a lot of articles that you can read up on. But I will say that, like, I think in terms of for-profit versus non-profit, in the for-profit world, you can sort of, there's a valuation for everything, right? There's these, these indicators, it's like revenues. And generally, it's like, okay, how do we create more revenue? And sort of like, there's a really easy North Star of like, let's make more money and provide more quote value to our shareholders or whatever that looks like. And so it, it's sort of like it's easy to unpack the blueprint of the steps along the way. Okay. And nonprofit, the quote value is measured so differently depending on, you know, what industry you're in or how you're incorporated, all those pieces. It just becomes very, very, very complex. So I do think there's a piece there of like, once you are in the world of impact where you're not measuring everything by dollars and cents, it just becomes harder to create a blueprint because it's that the North Stars are just a little bit different or a little bit off. And so I do think that that makes it harder. I also just think that in nonprofit, you just don't really think about it too, too much. And maybe this is part and parcel of sort of like um, the piece we were talking about before. But I think that often nonprofits you know, they're trying to decrease their general operating expenses, you know, so they can show up with five stars and um, not seem to be too expensive. That often means that as an employee of a nonprofit, you are heads down just trying to get it done. And you don't often pop your head up to think aspirationally, what are the opportunities out there to create? I think that often we tend to be a little bit more fear and protection goal driven. Like, oh, we need to do X to prove this to this funder so that we can get this amount of funding and keep doing the work. That's really different. That sort of like narrative is so different from who are my peers in this industry who believe what we believe maybe are doing some compatible work and could there be a partnership here? I think it's much easier to sort of withdraw into sort of like fear protection, especially because often we don't have the resources to like have that sort of aspirational time in the same way that maybe for-profits do because they are constantly trying to increase the dollar, dollar, dollar number. That's kind of where I'd start. But again, not an expert at all. No, but it's it's interesting because we talk about the nonprofit starvation cycle a lot and often talk about it in the context of, right, you're trying to keep your operating dollars as low as possible and your employees are wearing 10 different hats and you're trying to seem as inexpensive and impact driven as you possibly can, which, you know, there's, I take a lot of issue with that way of thinking. And the other piece of that is not just, you know, that sucks for a nonprofit employee, but also 
to your point, it doesn't leave room to think aspirationally, to think strategically, to level up in that way because you are constantly in survival mode. That is what I I have felt in this space, not just in my own experience, but from talking to so many other people who do this work. And it's you're just constantly trying to keep your head above water. And, you know, not to say that for-profit startups who are trying to raise capital don't face a certain type of, you know, stress as well. But there is inherently, you are pushed to be innovative and to think outside the box and to figure out how can I really take this to the next level. And nonprofits are never given that same challenge or room to think. Because we get free dollars, right? Philanthropy is giving us these, quote, free dollars. And so the free dollars need to go towards something that is proven. And so philanthropy is often like way behind social innovation, often, because they're also practicing in fear. Oh, my goodness, I'm never going to see these dollars again. So what has been proven? And I'm not even talking about like, you know, has this organization done done an RCT? It's like, is there enough literature out there? And is there enough belief out there for me to put my free dollars in versus what Common Future does? And I mean, I, I like really appreciate this visioning from the revenue team at Common Future, but like invest in R&D. Think of this as R&D dollars so that we can figure out the pilots and the demonstrations that nobody's really done before that truly build power and build wealth in marginalized communities. Give us the money to experiment so we can find your next big thing that then we'll have, you know, the two years of data so that the more traditional philanthropists can then say, okay, yeah, I'll put my money in, right? Like we need to find those dollars that are okay with a certain amount of risk because that is where the innovation is. And that 90% of the time, I feel like just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think that's been my single biggest frustration being a nonprofit is is exactly that, right? Is being caught in that loop of, oh, what you're doing is really innovative, but we don't really see anything else like that. So we're not going to give you funding because we don't see anything else like that, which is crazy loop to get caught in. And it's been happening for years. So I think that it is really interesting. And I am curious, how did your experience in the for-profit world color the way that you look at the nonprofit world now, having been a co-founder and CEO? Is there any kind of anything you've carried from that chapter of your career into where you are now? I would say probably one of the lessons that I learned that is that even as a for-profit social entrepreneur, sort of like fundraising, starvation, whatever you want to call it, valley of death, as a startup, it exists whether you're for-profit or whether you're non-profit. And that was kind of a, a wake-up call for me because I really was just pinning my hopes on if I build a strong enough business, I'm gonna I can sustainably have impact. But it's just really hard to start a new business. Full stop. And then from a personal perspective, I took away some really deep learnings about myself, you know, which I've been able to apply. And I don't think that has really much to do with whether you are for profit or nonprofit. It just had to do with the roles and responsibilities that I said, yes, I can do this. And then I got to take away from that. I'm good at this and I enjoy it versus I'm good at this and I hate it versus, oh, I'm just really bad at this. You know, all of those things, knowing those things about myself, really, really helpful. Goes to your point of we are always on a journey. This is not one sort of linear, clear path. If it was, life would be much easier and I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. But <laughs> I, as we kind of bring our conversation to a close, curious if you have any final advice for people who are listening, who are thinking about their own role in this space, in the space of social change and advocacy and equity work, whatever that might look like. How do we show up to that work? How do we continuously check ourselves? Any advice you have of staying rooted in service of others and keeping our egos at the door as much as possible in particular? 
I'd say remember that this work takes time and it takes much more than each of us individually. Much, much. There's The world is incredibly complex. Its problems are complex. And so we need many humans trying different things and listening to each other. I think that discovering and crafting a role for, and space for yourself that feels true to your intent, but also your talents and what makes you feel like strong and abundant in your work is really important. And, you know, don't force yourself to do the stuff that, you know, you think is expected of you, right? Like I have a, a Japanese mother in Asian culture that's sort of like pathway that you are supposed to follow. And I think that when you do the work that drains your energy, there's a price to pay. Practicing setting those boundaries where needed is important. Practice humility. I am still learning less. And I'm 17 years in, like I, I'm still learning. I feel like I still have a really long way to go. The last thing is to practice bravery, which I think, again, often as women, we're, we're taught not to ask Japanese. Japanese women taught not to ask culturally, make that ask, right? Because we have to be brave in this work, knowing that, yes, there's lots of things that could go wrong, but in our work, how can we paint that bigger aspirational picture of what things could be and how do we work towards that? I think if you do those things, that was a really long list, but if you do those things, then you can leverage the impact you have more and more as you go through your career. It's simple. Just do all of those things. <laughs> Good luck. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. No, I so appreciate this time, Emily. I really enjoy our conversations. I think it is such helpful grounding for me and always helpful to hear someone who has that level of perspective, having seen so many different sides of social change. So very grateful that you gave me an hour of your time and for two more conversations in the future. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really, really big difference to our community. Thank you.